0: dignity of man the taliban al qaeda and isis have all done some very bad things thousands of desperate families walk many hundreds of miles to get to america since at least 2001 our military and national defense policy has focused on these threats or alleged threats to the security of the united states through our taxes you and i are spending many hundreds of billions of dollars to, at least in theory, protect ourselves. Weapons contractors are making out handsomely. But are these dollars being well spent? Is it a good national defense policy likely to achieve its stated goals? Could it be that this policy is a spiral feeding off itself as it actually exacerbates and yields more power to what it claims to seek to defeat? Meanwhile, most Americans are very aware of the threat of climate change and are all doing our parts. But does any part of the environmental movement look at the Pentagon's massive use of petroleum products? In a new article entitled We Can't Confront Climate Change While Lavishly Funding the Pentagon, curatorial journalist, historian, and documentary filmmaker J.P. Sotil argues that thanks to a self-blinded policy based entirely on finding, controlling, and defending sources of oil, the pentagon is staring down the barrel of what could become the longest, hottest war in US history. This titanic clash pits the largest military the world has ever seen against an omnipresent opponent that can marshal resources like no many enemy it has ever encountered." End of quote. The ways in which this narrowly targeted policy is affecting our national defense are legion. And what many see as the biggest threat to America, climate change, is quickly worsening by continuing down this path. Thanks so much for being with us, J.P. Good to
2: be with you, Bert.
0: J.P. Sotilli's television news credits include stints at the NewsHour and C-SPAN and is both producer and executive producer for an Emmy-winning news magazine on ABC affiliate WJLA in Washington, D.C. For the last decade, J.P. has produced the Daily news vandal rundown newsletter I love that title news vandal uh, and has written for truth out consortium news counterpunch and the guardian among others well again thanks for being with us you say this threatening war of which you speak is not just on foreign soil but quote the war is also being waged on u.s. soil tell us about sergeant sylvester klein who was a casualty of this war and it was on american soil
2: yeah, he uh, died during a black flag day. Black flag days are days when the heat index is so high that it's dangerous to conduct even training exercises, and this would have been in Georgia. Many of the U.S. bases are in the southeast where climate change is having its most uh, significant impact in terms of heat index, and he died of basically heat stroke, heat exhaustion and heat stroke, and the number of deaths has increased uh, precipitously over the last decade, when not coincidentally, the number of hottest days on 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 record have occurred, and the Pentagon is struggling to figure out how to deal with this. Now that information came from a really good investigative report, a cooperative report between uh, I think it was Inside Climate News and NBC News. It's a great report, and that got me thinking about the nature of the Pentagon and climate change because the Pentagon. Many people will say, you know, the Pentagon has long accepted that climate change is a reality, and uh-huh. that is absolutely true. And in 2019, they issued a report, a very thoroughgoing report, about the future of climate change. What I find interesting about it is that I believe that climate change is a byproduct of 70 years of U.S. empire. And interestingly enough, it is now becoming a rationale for even more empire. <laughs>
0: Oh, nothing like learning from history. My goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I'm curious. And and you say that the the Pentagon says they accept the the reality of climate change. So all that's doing, see if I got this right, is uh, is spurring them on to search for more oil and and defend more uh, places where we depend on our oil and support those uh, regimes that uh, supply us with the oil. That's how they're dealing with climate change?
2: No, it's, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, yes, the I, You know the way I postulate it, and I uh, recently wrote a a piece that I published on my website. It's a very long piece, nineteen thousand words, so it's not no. for the faint of heart <laughs> on Trump's presidency and the ways in which he is probably the most oil friendly president America has ever had, which is saying a lot coming out of the W administration. Um, <clears throat> Often what the Pentagon is doing when it's, when it's weaponizing the interest of oil is not trying to extract oil, it's trying to keep oil in the ground. I mean, that's a big part of what's going on with oil markets. You think about Venezuela and Iran and Libya, their oil is in the ground, and that's... Yes because the, the oil market is saturated. And we know about the transmission routes, things like the Strait of Hormuz, why is the Fifth Fleet of Bahrain located in the Persian Gulf? It's not because the American people and the Bahraini people have a special relationship that dates back centuries. It's because we, the United States is keeping the Strait of Hormuz open for particularly Saudi Arabia. Yes. And also the United Arab Emirates. Uh, then there's the Bab al-Mandeep Strait. There's another huh. interesting place. Most people are not familiar with it. Um, the, the strait actually runs, interestingly, on one side of the strait is Yemen, where the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, uh, with U.S. support, are fighting a war against Iranian proxies and the Houthi rebels. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the Bab, Bab al-Mandeep Strait is Djibouti, where the United States has had a, a military presence for quite some time, Camp Lemonnier. Why is the U.S. there, and why are the Saudis and the Emiratis so interested? It's because of the Bab al mandeb Strait. The other exit point for oil out of the Middle East is the Suez Canal, and anybody who's spent any time on, on the Middle East knows that Egypt, except for one small blip with President Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, has been a client of the United States, and President al-Sisi, a general, uh, is a— client of the united states and a big fan of donald trump and donald trump of him why because you need to keep those oil transmission routes open so i mean we could go on forever talking about the the many ways in which u.s empire has been a protection racket for hmm. the the oil industry but also has been a subsidy to the oil industry that helps sustain it because you think about all the tax dollars things like the F-35 program and the mm. and littoral combat ship and, and all of the weapon systems, these are essentially subsidies to the oil industry because I just cannot imagine Chevron or ExxonMobil having to field their own navy to protect these transmission routes. The other side of it that I find interesting is that there's the, you know, Empire, uh, climate change is a byproduct of Empire. The other thing that I find interesting is that Now, climate change is becoming a predicate for more empire because we are now starting to see the effects of climate change. So one effect that the Pentagon has been planning for for a long time are massive population movements and disruptions caused by climate migration. So who's going to be on the front line of dealing with that? That's going to be the Pentagon. The United States has over 800 bases. In like 135, 140 countries, it fluctuates from year to year depending on the size of the garrison in certain places, and sometimes they pull out and go back in. Who is going to be on the front line? That's going to be the Pentagon. You think about things like the wall and -hmm. and military uh, funds being diverted to the wall. Mm -hmm. Well, in a sense, there's a strange logic to it. It kind of makes sense because we don't hear about the fact that people fleeing from Honduras, Guatemala, uh, um, <clears throat> are not just fleeing the the long lasting impact of U.S. involvement, military involvement in Central America, but they are experiencing massive deforestation and droughts, and so it portends the climate disrupting um, effects that lead to climate migrations, that lead to populations moving, that lead to what the Pentagon having to mount the wall on a garrison state to forestall the impacts of climate change.
0: So could Trump actually be, dare I say, correct in the wall and somewhat of a visionary in, in recognizing that there's going to be a lot of people who are fleeing, as you say, not just the repressive uh, you know, regimes and the drug gangs, but the droughts and the heat. But then again, I mean a wall isn't going to work certainly. What are you
2: Exactly. I mean that's, that's you know, you're not going to get me into saying Trump is a visionary on much of anything.
0: <laughs> I didn't think so I somehow. Just,
2: <laughs> yeah, I just think that there is a a ghoulish internal logic uh-huh. to a lot of this. Wow. That now that we're going to see the effects, you know, you talked about Sergeant Klein dying, a military trainer, I believe he was a lieutenant, <clears throat> said that one of the reasons why the Pentagon has not responded more quickly to these black flag days that have caused a spike in heat-related deaths, is that military commanders want their sure. troops to be acclimated to fighting in the conditions they're most likely to face out in the field. Well, those are super-hot conditions, and what are those super-hot conditions? That's the Middle East. Yes. And if you talk about troops in the Middle East, what are they fighting for? Well, they're fighting to protect the oil industry and U.S. oil interests and hydrocarbon interests because mm-hmm. it's also natural gas and LNG. So there that logic is is so built into the system, it is as if the Pentagon is trapped in it. And mm-hmm. now that climate change is doing things like thawing out the Arctic, yeah. uh, there was a report just a day ago that I put on the rundown um, that... The melting Arctic is actually starting to reveal islands, and the Russians have, are, oh, look, we have islands now in this part of the Arctic where we, are, where we are claiming sovereignty. China and Russia are already starting preliminary drilling, exploratory drilling in the Arctic region, and because the sea lanes are opening and the ice is melting with increasing rapidity, there is a scramble, the beginning of a scramble for those oil, gas, and mineral resources that are being revealed by climate change. And so what does that mean? That means the Pentagon is now starting to make budgetary requests and make plans for extending U.S. hegemony Mm -hmm. into the Arctic because it's being revealed uh, as a a theater of action by climate change.
0: And that's one thing that I've wondered about. Uh, when when Trump uh, floated the idea of buying Greenland from Denmark, I mean the basic, you know, widespread reaction was this is just nuts. Why would he do that? But I think we know why. I'm surprised nobody's really talked about the idea that wow, there's a lot of uh, resources potentially in uh, in Greenland. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, but, yeah, particularly rare earth resources. Oh, yes. These are the things that help. Uh, Make lithium batteries. I mean, rare earths are also another reason many people have speculated why the United States refuses to leave Afghanistan. They're actually two they're, they're of a piece in a sense for that because, you know, with access to those resources coming online, the United States wants to be there to, term, to determine who has uh, control of them and who has access to them in the long run. And with China and the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, yeah, mm. going around Africa and uh, putting countries in, essentially into sort of debt thrall, mm. you know, we will build you all of these, this infrastructure and then mm. you will be indebted to us. It's basically the IMF model that the United States used for many, many years to keep countries enthralled to the United States. The, they just turned it into this Belt and Road Initiative and they're, they're using the, the old US neo imperialist playbook. And it's to get what? It's to get access to all of those those mineral resources and other resources. Sadly, in particular, um, elephant tusks and, and mm. rhino horns, among other things. So that over the long term, these countries have have nowhere to go but to the person to whom they are indebted, and that's right. and that's you know, this is, there's a scramble happening right now that I don't think we are really paying that close of attention to, and I understand why, because we are, the zone is flooded with so much news and so much sort of soap opera news around yeah. <laughs> around our political situation, it's hard to, uh, you know, sort it all out.
0: True, and I, it, it just amazes me how, you know, the Greenland folly, just uh, people didn't see that somehow. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, journalist, historian, documentary filmmaker J.P. Sottili. Uh, we and his article, his new article, is "We Can't Confront Climate Change While Lavishly Funding the Pentagon." And like it or not, we all contribute to the problem of global warming. When we heat our homes, we drive our cars, we consume plastic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Many of us are conscious of it, and. We're trying to do our part, and our consciousness has increased in the past few years. But seeing military activities, huge battleships, high-powered fighter planes and bombers, uh, it appears fuel consumption concerns are not even in the picture. Where does the U.S. military use of hydrocarbons fit into the worldwide consumption of oil? And I wanted to know, are they exempt from environmental laws? Well, I'll
2: take those in order. Uh, Brown University's Costs of War Project just earlier this year put out a study and determined that the Pentagon is the single largest institutional consumer of hydrocarbons on the planet. Uh, That study was reinforced by another study coming out of uh, a couple British university professors. So that's well established. Now, in terms of overall, it's not... not, um, It's not that significant in terms when you compare it to the the country of China or the United States in total consumer consumption, but as an institution, it is a massive consumer of of hydrocarbons. Now, the Pentagon has done some preliminary uh, work on trying to create small. Sort of microgrid power capabilities, so that if you have a small footprint military operation that goes into Africa, instead of having to worry up, up, uh, upon a, su- a supply line to bring hydrocarbons to your forward operating troops, you could actually establish a small solar-based microgrid to mm. power. I mean, you know, they're because they're concerned about getting the job done,
1: right. obviously.
2: That's their that's their number one thing. In terms of uh, NEPA, which is the, uh, uh, national environmental policy act, which was enacted in 1970. I you know, did, I've done some research on that. And, you know, I've found all the way back in what, 2007, whatever, a set of protocols that allow them to have some, um, some exemptions to those requirements, those environmental requirements based on national security But as with everything since Truman signed, you know, NSC-68 in, 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 it was in 1948? National security trumps everything to make a pun on what's going on in our daily political lives. And so there, you know, in times of war, and this is one thing that I think we tend to forget, is that since the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11, we have been in a perpetual state of war. And uh, so the Pentagon does get their exemptions where they need it. And this has come back to bite them in things like the burn pits, which have sickened Mm -hmm. many, many hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers. And now one of the things the Pentagon is dealing with, too, is a sudden spike in cancer rates among troops, and particularly among people who work uh, uh, on planes, in and around planes and pilots. So these exemptions are are there for the taking, but uh, they don't always... Escape the ultimate effect of those exemptions.
0: Yeah, I, I, the the price we all pay for that, and you know, we've all seen the jets and the various uh, war games that they do, which you know can be arguably justified under national defense. It seems like fuel consumption; it, they don't even pay attention to that. It just no. you know they just burn, burn, burn. And I've wondered too. I uh, we're and the show is coming here from Portsmouth, New Hampshire where uh, yes. we used to have the Pease Air Force Base, uh, which took a long time to get up and running after they closed. But I wonder about the, the pollution that's there. Uh, you know, there are many, many domestic air force bases that have been closed, and there have been real problems resulting from the dumping of chemicals. And what about environmental regulations to which we civilians must adhere? I wonder about some of that stuff with the hydrocarbons.
2: Well, you know, once a a base is decommissioned, then it does fall under EPA's usually Superfund program. And we, you know, I'm in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. and we we have multiple military installations here uh, that have been decommissioned. Uh, Right here on the island of Alameda, where I live, we've had a naval air station, um, radiation issues there, same thing with Treasure Island across the bay. Uh, So, you know, once... Once the military leaves, then They're supposed it to. falls under civilian control again, in a sense. And then the, then the civilian agency, the EPA, takes over. And, of course, that's another subsidy that the U.S. taxpayer is paying for for those cleanup <laughs> issues. So, I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned um, things like, like weapon systems. I think one of the, I'm very interested in the way these systems interlock and particularly how defense has interlocked with oil since FDR met with King Saud in 1945 and began uh, what, what has been maybe the most consequential strategic relationship in the history of mankind, and that would uh, be the strategic relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And one of the things about this defense uh, uh, funding system, the defense budget, Take, for example, something like the F-35, which is probably going to go down as the as the biggest boondoggle in the history of this is, this, I mean, this makes, uh, oh, there was a tank in the 80s that, that, that really was a huge boondoggle. It's, it, this is going to be a major boondoggle forever because this is a plane that can't fly in inclement weather and all kinds of things. The, the pilots were being killed, but could be potentially killed by the, By the the way that was designed, they had to design a special helmet to keep pilots' necks from breaking. All kinds of problems with it. Lockheed, by the way, just signed a $2.4 billion contract to provide spare parts to a plane that they've been building. So it's an ATM machine as far as they're concerned. But if you look at the F-35, one of the reasons why it persists, much like many of the defense programs uh, and weapon systems that are deployed as a de facto subsidy to the oil industry. It's also a form of military Keynesianism <clears throat> whereby money goes into defense programs which employ people right. in good paying jobs in places all around the country. If you look at the contracting for the F35, the place the, the way it was the way it's being built is it's been farmed out to a number of different places around the country so that a number of different congressional districts and senate seats have it in their interest to keep providing money to provide high-paying jobs to constituents. And this interlocking relationship is one of the things that sustains it. So you mentioned that we all contribute to climate change, and this is true, right? You know, I'm looking around my desk here, and I have a computer, and the shell of the computer is made with plastic, and we tend not to connect the fact that almost all the plastic that we purchase comes from petroleum products. Yes. So... There is that. But in the case of, this, of the defense budget, we talk about the profits that defense companies make, but they also employ tens of thousands of people, and really it turns into millions of people being employed directly or indirectly by the defense sure. budget when you look at not just the people who are employed making, making cockpit seats for F-35s, but all of the ancillary oh, yeah. uh, businesses around those businesses that sustain the economy so there's a huge chunk of our economy or there's a huge constituency in our economy yeah. of non these are not shareholders in defense companies these are what we would call average american workers yes. who are dependent upon this this defense subsidy
0: and, you know, you talk about Keynesian economics. I believe in Keynesian economics. I think it's always proved true. And you're right. It is creating a lot of jobs. But if, <laughs> if you were to look, of course, at, you know, comparing jobs created by dollars in the military versus jobs created uh, by building, uh, you know, solar, uh, wind, uh, various other things investing in infrastructure you know rebuilding be roads sure. railroads things like that There'd be a lot more but you know president trump is one thing and the republicans you know obviously are in fear of being made fun of by this orange bully but but and democrats you're right i mean they they won't say anything about uh uh, you know military things in their district everybody wants military things in their district but I you know the, the, it, it 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 you know yeah okay it's Keynesian economics but it doesn't compare to what could be done is there any I don't know, I mean, out of 435 people in Congress, there must be, maybe, are there any members of Congress who are, who are talking about this, how we could create more jobs by investing that and be a lot, do a lot more to reduce climate change? Because, you know, having this, as, as you say, uh, uh, ATM, you know, just continuing down the road of using more and more oil and hydrocarbons, it doesn't uh, add to our national defense, really. Anybody talking about this? besides you and me?
2: Yeah, um, well, our con- member of Congress here in this district, where I live, is Barbara Lee. Oh, yeah, she's all
0: right. And she
2: voted against the authorization for use of military force. I think Good for the only person to do
0: so in Congress, quite I possible. think. Yeah, you may be right. I like her quite
2: a bit. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's, I, that's, but that's such a rarity, such an outlier. I mean, you do have, Tim Ryan, Congress, member of Congress
1: from mm.
2: a Democratic uh, Congress uh, person coming out of uh, Ohio who's yes. running for president, is not going to make time. the debate stage this time. Right. And, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, investing in um, in electric car technology to create a new um, sort of burst of factory yeah. development and create jobs. I mean, these these ideas come up, but the system itself is so... As you say, so uh, ensconced in our national life, and it's this has taken many, many years to build. I mean, this is this oh,
1: is yeah.
2: post World War II. Since then to today, with one little blip in the '90s when we supposedly were going to get the peace dividend in the United States
1: mm. after the
2: fall of the Soviet Union, <laughs> and and you know that that's what that was a an eight year, seven or eight year blip in the defense budget where it declined. Not it not to, um, pre World War Two levels, but it declined. It was not at at spiking to the spiked levels of the of the Reagan defense budget buildup and or the Vietnam War or, or comparatively what happened at the beginning of the War on Terror, which was a massive spike. Oh yeah, but but it's just it's such a part. And you know, let's make a differentiation because I think that demand-side economics, which would be Keynesian economics, yes. does have a pretty strong track record, Absolutely. particularly when you compare it with supply-side economics, which has a very Poor. different track record. <laughs>
0: Terrible. Yeah.
2: But military Keynesianism, although it is Keynesianism, yeah. and those people who work in those jobs do go out and spend, Absolutely. so there is creating some demand-side. I've actually written about this for Truthout. I've been writing about Aspects of this now for the last three or four years on truth out every every few months four or five months And I wrote about military keynesianism and studies have shown that bang for the buck in yeah. terms of creating Cascading economic activity. It's not comparable to things like building roads and bridges which create the infrastructure Literally the infrastructure for other businesses to spot to sprout up and themselves create a cascading effect through other businesses because the defense business, you know, what it's doing is creating a product that is not really commercially viable.
0: Yeah, so, true. Absolutely.
2: So that's a problem. Uh, but, you know, I think what I would like to do, one of the reasons I write the, these stories is I would like people to start to connect the fact that things like the Iraq War, is it's not just about... Well, there was a lie told and obviously it's about oil, that it's also about climate change. It's about an it's about all of these other issues that are interlocking. And, you know, when we look at nature and we see that there's sort of a that ecosystems are built on webs of relationships, you start looking at things like the ecosystem of American Empire, it's built on a web of relationships and trying to understand these relationships and point them out might help people get their head around the challenge ahead, because I think the more that, w- that the United States falls into the trap of feeding the empire that created the circumstances that the empire is now saying it's going to have to mitigate with more empire,
1: no. the,
2: the faster the, the destruction is going to come. It just accelerates the destruction, and we are, in a sense, subsidizing our own destruction.
0: Oh, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Subsidizing our own destruction. I I can't see that you're wrong. I I'm, it does seem there's a lot of evidence for that. And, and we're just talking about uh, climate change. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and uh, our guest J.P. Sotilli, has uh, written: We can't confront climate change while lavishly funding the Pentagon. It's just you, you just can't really do it. And. uh yeah we talked about a little bit of of history you know certainly in the second world war germany directed many of its actions to secure a supply of vital oil that they needed for their war machine since 1945 as you write it has been a constant there's been a constant thread about securing oil we got saudi arabia iran iraq and you know these countries have been prioritized and cultivated and a pretense of the old mythical policy based on, oh, securing freedom and democracy for oppressed people. It just seems so quaint now. I wonder if anybody believes that.
2: Well, against you have to put that against the context of the time, too, and I, specifically the idea of peak oil. And I think, you know, up until the last 10 years or, or 12 years, a lot of these moves were made based on the idea that, well, oil is the energy we have. It's either that or nuclear. And, and nuclear is not working out, right? What are you yeah. going to do with, that, with all of the, the nuclear waste? Oh,
1: yeah.
2: And there was a sense that, that, we, that you had to plan for the eventual collapse of the resource, the availability of it. And so you wanted to get as much as you can while you can, and you wanted to preserve your access to it for as long as possible and that really culminates if you think about it with the iraq war and you know as i've charted this over the years and been following it for many many years the the peak oil theory really had its most intense currency from 1998 to 2002 2003 which was right around what that's the that's where the predicate for the iraq war happened and you know the iraq war was about oil, folks. And I'm sure your listeners believe that, but yeah, there are course. people that still argue with it uh, over that idea, but it was about oil. Yeah. At that time, Saddam Hussein's share of the world's proven oil resources had gone from four to, like, number two, right behind Saudi Arabia at that time, because that has shifted now. The world's largest proven oil reserves is Venezuela, and I can get to that. Oh, no, you know, yes, why that's let's. important.
1: Yeah. It,
0: um, well, so, I... I uh, you know, and just a little bit of history, Ronald Reagan, we talked about him just briefly. Uh, he had something which you describe uh, called CENTCOM, C-E-N-T-C-O-M. In what ways did it define global military policy then and now? And and why do you charge—and uh, uh, so why do you charge that uh, you, through this program and the continuation of that, basically, You su- you suggest that the enemy of the U.S. is of its own making—
2: Well, I mean, it is kind of funny to me that CENTCOM, which was created during the Reagan administration, you know that the Pentagon divides the world up into command structures, which is, I guess, what empires do, right? Yeah, sure. The British Empire had the map with all the pink bits, right? They painted every place they controlled pink. Well, (laughs) the United States has an acronym. Of course, we, the Pentagon, and the United States, our empire, we love acronyms. So, yeah, they have acronyms. So it's NORCOM for... For northern command which is north america's south com and uh, indopac com now for the india uh, Ind- india pacific region africom for africa uh-huh. uh but middle east the middle eastern command structure is not middle east com or Midcom; it's sent com central uh, command that that's, that's what it's something. short for yeah. in other words it's the center of all u.s military and geopolitical planning and I think it's a unintentional stumble into the truth right and like the Pentagon or like the defense budget or the or US Empire has created climate change as a byproduct and now that byproduct is becoming a rationale for more empire the United States by making oil and the Middle East central to everything it's done has created Enemies that justify its presence in the Middle East, because it's quite obvious. And, you know, the great Chalmers Johnson, a uh, late great historian, person who I was fortunate enough to not only meet, but wrote a blurb for a book that I was a contributor to
1: oh, cool.
2: um, called Japan in the Fascist Era. If you ever, in- anybody's ever interested in spending 80 bucks on an academic tome, um, he talked about blowback, right? He made that that term uh, huh. quite famous, actually. He's the progenitor of that. And blowback in the Middle East, because the United States prioritized oil and made the Middle East central to everything, created what? Created enemies. What, the, what do those enemies do? Creates the predicate for more military presence in the region. It's a feedback loop. And so, you know, it, the, I think the hardest thing to do is to break these feedback loops, In the case of oil, I think the breaking point for that feedback loop is now available because the peak oil frenzy that has driven U.S. policy for all these years, again, like the ghoulish internal logic of building a wall when you kind of feel like there's going to be an invasion because all the hydrocarbons you've burned are going to dislodge people who have contributed almost nothing to climate change, but are going to be the, on the front lines of feeling the first effects of it. There is that, as you say, that, as you said, it's not, well, you said is a visionary. It's a ghoulish logic. I, that's what I call it. It yeah. makes sense on some sort of fundamental level. Um, it also makes sense on a fundamental level that you think the oil is going to run out to acquire and hold as much of it as possible. The problem is is that since the Iraq War, what we have discovered is that there is a lot of oil to be discovered. And as a matter of fact, there is more oil than it seems the market can bear or use. And the price of oil, if it wasn't being artificially sustained through sanctions and through um, destabilizing actions... The price of oil would be dropping precipitously, and the more the price of oil drops, the less profitable it becomes. And this is happening against the backdrop of renewable energy sources, particularly wind and solar, dropping uh, uh, precipitously at the same time. So the cost of per megawatt hour for, for wind power now beats hydrocarbons. Solar is now beating hydrocarbons. The price of wind is actually dropping faster than hydrocarbons. And so, the competitive nature of that is making it even making it even more problematic for the oil industry, and I think causing them to act more irrationally. And I think it's one of the reasons why you see many of these things that are happening with the Trump administration releasing, um, making it easier for companies to release methane, going after fuel economy standards, scrubbing. All of the uh, government websites of any talk of climate change, getting out of mm-hmm. the Paris Accords—all of these things are done are being done because the oil industry is coming up against a a cul-de-sac in their profitability. They are they're getting stuck because there's P, BNP Paribas, which is a, an investment bank in in uh, in France, just put out a study, and they project that in the next. Decade and a half, two decades, oil will have to be at eleven to fifteen dollars a barrel to compete with renewables.
0: Wow, they don't like 11-15. that. I'm sure.
2: No, <laughs> right now oil has been West Texas Intermediate and Brent uh, crude. Those are the two benchmark oils. Uh-huh. It's been between fifty and sixty. Right. So right now, the United States is the world's largest producer of hydrocarbons. It's United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia—the big three in the world. Isn't that an interesting trio, by the way, when you think about the Trump administration and who they're connected to on? <laughs> oh
1: um,
2: so the, the Permian Basin in Texas is one of the places where the, where it's flowing. And to, to extract out of the Permian Basin, oil has to be added around, at or around $50 a barrel for it to remain po- profitable. So what's going to happen when you can get your energy needs met, and to to compete with, from renewables and to compete with it, your oil has to be at 11 to $15 per barrel. That's the end of the oil industry, folks. That's it. So That's that, it.
0: That might explain a little bit of why Trump says there's no such thing as climate change. He doesn't want yes. there to be any awareness of climate change. Wow. That sort of makes me angry, I must say. Well, it's it's
2: it's it's even worse than that i'll be honest with you because if you think about the, the case of venezuela yes, venezuela please. is the world's largest proven oil reserves the trump administration has done nothing but but throttle its ability to sell oil even going as far as to run a blockade against oil going into going to cuba right. another place where the trump administration has has throttled the export of oil and gas is Iran. Yes. And the stated policy is to zero out Iranian exports. And then there's another place called Libya. Oh, yeah. And out of the blue, a guy named Commandant Haftar, Haftar, by the way, had been trained by the CIA in the late 80s. He was funded and is still funded by the United Arab Emirates and by Saudi Arabia. And he, out of the blue, attacked Tripoli. It was inexplicable to many watchers it was not inexplicable to me because that destabilized libya and cut its ability to export oil so imagine if libya iran and and venezuela were able to to produce oil and gas at full capacity the price of oil would probably drop to 26 dollars a barrel which is where which was the low point during the Obama administration after Obama opened up the spigot on fracking in the United States and radically destabilized the economies of Russia and Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, by the
0: way. Wow. that It explains so much. And here we are, the, virtually everybody in the United States now. I mean, all the polls suggest that climate change is a big, important issue. Uh, Bernie Sanders says it's the greatest threat. I believe it is. And yet here we have a policy which is clearly exacerbating uh, the problems with climate change. And the idea that, I mean, people wonder about, you know, Venezuela, uh, uh, Iran uh, and Libya, you know, why those guys are so uh, such bad guys. You know, there's yeah. OK, there's bad guys there. But, you know, Saudi Arabia Egypt, a few places like that. Oh no, they're okay. I mean, they're pretty darn repressive as well. But the difference, once again, what a surprise, is oil. Now you—it's
2: you OPEC and its control of OPEC, because Saudi Arabia still has control of OPEC along with their Emirati pow- uh, pals, and the Emirati Saudi alliance is what what controls essentially the global oil market. What is interesting to me is that. For the first time ever, there's a thing called OPEC Plus, and OPEC Plus is OPEC plus Russia. Right around, right after Trump was, was, was elected, Russia started to coordinate its production output, and particularly its production cuts, because this is, when OPEC is in the news, if you pay attention, what it is, is they get together and they all decide to how much they want to restrict production. So the oil market is a reflection not of the, of the free market. It's a reflection of a managed and controlled market because they are restricting the amount of oil on the market to artificially inflate the price. So Russia has, for the first time ever, been cooperating with the Emiratis and with Saudi Arabia to try and restrict the spigot on oil to sustain the price because those three countries depend so much on it. The problem for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in particular, is that they are petroleum-rich but natural gas-poor. The number two proven natural gas reserves on the planet belongs to Iran. And Iran has been cooperating with Qatar. Qatar uh, Some people say Qatar or Qatar.
0: Qatar, yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: I prefer Qatar. Yeah. Um, and they share the world's largest gas field it's in the middle of the persian gulf both of their territorial uh, waters and uh, butt up against one another where that gas field is and they are cooperating with one another to exploit that gas field and if if you look at where the oil reserves are shifting where you have venezuela and iran and other powers getting a larger share and in particular iraq which is now coming online, and where is Iraq now? Iraq is basically in the orbit of Iran. So you have a potential block inside OPEC which could challenge the Saudi control of OPEC. And this is the back-room kind of power game that's being played against Iran, is that the Saudis want to retain control over OPEC with their Emirati powers, and shut out the Iranians from actually supplanting them as being the pace setter for the price of hydrocarbons around the world.
0: Uh, it's a, a curiouser and curiouser, as uh, I think Lewis Carroll was saying. It just tuned in. It is a it it,
2: it it does become a rabbit hole after a while. I mean, I you know, I I guess I've been lucky, Bert, that I have the uh, the time to to go down these rabbit holes, <laughs> but it's the thing is is that it's not as fanciful as a lewis carroll novel (laughs) because it's actually very simple it's money it's just money and if you follow the money you know take a deep-throated look down a deep rabbit hole yeah and you follow the money it it's it's actually quite explicable it's it makes a lot of sense i mean not, it does, I'm not saying that as a value judgment, I'm saying that as a...
0: Logic, pure you know, logic, yeah.
2: As logically, it does make a lot of sense why we're seeing the things that we see and why U.S. military power is where it is. And, you know, last week, for example, the Trump administration announced that they're going to increase the mission pace of U.S. US Navy in the South China Sea. Now, people say, "Ah, oh, well, this is about China, and China's the other great power, and the United States has to stand up to China. And, and there is a, you know, I was at the Center for Defense Information in the late 90s as a defense policy oh,
0: um, Good bunch researcher. of people, yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, a great place. It's, it's where I cut my teeth in Washington, D.C. And um, I would go to Capitol Hill and watch these presentations by co- members of Congress about the coming China threat and whatnot, this has been on everybody's mind for a long time, which itself has its ironies because the China threat was in no small part built by U.S. corporations and Wall Street trying to cut the, you know, increase their profitability by seeking cheap labor overseas. Mm. But that's a whole another hour show we can, we can do so another time. Um, what's really at play in the South China Sea, particularly around the Spratlys and other islands, Oil. It's the next frontier for oil exploration. And what does the United States, the uh, the Trump administration said, we need to increase our mission pace there because China is blocking the access and exploitation of a great uh, a resource, oil and, uh, uh, and gas resource that, uh, that should be delivered to market, basically. Well, is that really what it is, or do they want to go there and create tension and lock that oil into the ground underneath uh-huh. the uh, uh, the ocean floor uh-huh. because that, if that oil were to come to market, <laughs> would that would be price. a big problem for Saudi Arabia, the United States, and for the United Arab Emirates. So what you do is you create military tension in a region, you destabilize a region, and what does that do? The, the oil markets react because oil markets are very uh, reactive to tension how many times have you seen oil rise on fears of tensions in the middle east all you need is market fears or market sees tensions and you'll get a spike in in oil and if you have economies of scale a two dollar spike in the price of oil on a given day because the united states moves military uh, um, a military let's uh, uh, say like a a task force uh out of the red sea into the persian gulf you might see a, a 2 or $3 spike in the price of oil. If you're an oil speculator, you can make a lot of money off of that. So there's that. And then all you, what you do in the long term is make it difficult for China to extract oil and gas from the South China Sea. And the long-term effect of that is to do what? To try and keep a stranglehold on China by limiting their access to oil and gas. I believe it's one of the reasons why the United States has persisted in Afghanistan, which is in Iran's traditional orbit of influence about I think it's up to 60 or 70 percent of Afghanis speak Farsi or a Farsi dialect and imagine if Iran and Afghanistan were to ultimately cooperate which they only did during the time of the Taliban on drug trade the drug trade actually declined when the Taliban was in control because the Iranians and the Taliban were cooperating with one another and they the, the amount of drug uh, opium came came down actually Hmm. and then it spiked once the united states went in and destabilized afghanistan (laughs) but another thing that's not happening is that you you're closing off the possibility of an overseas pipeline that could deliver natural gas without having to go over over, overseas but over land from iran to the world's largest consumer of natural gas now as of this year, China.
0: Ah, uh-huh. uh, yes, the oil. It's It seems to be behind so much. And uh, curious, that you mentioned I, I had not heard about a meeting that uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo had recently uh, yeah. in the Arctic Council in Finland. Uh, how did that end up? What, tell us about that one.
2: Well, you know, it's Finland, Norway, Canada. It's the Arctic powers, and they get together and Because the Arctic region is, as I mentioned earlier, there's a scramble that's just at the beginning stages of a scramble for the for the Arctic, and of course, they wanted to issue a communiqué saying that climate change was a was a uh, major concern for the Arctic Council. Pompeo would not sign off on it; would not sign off on the communiqué, and as a matter of fact, went out and touted the unbelievable possibilities. That the melting Arctic is presenting for not only uh, new shipping routes to deliver goods and services around the world by exploiting these new waterways that have opened uh, over the Ar- in the Arctic Circle, but also the untold gas, oil, and mineral resources that can now be extracted from the Arctic. So this is this is you know one of these flashpoints. This is one of these keys for me, Bert. It's there you see the nexus point, where the decision to continue to extract will make U.S. empire much more likely to persist. So, you know, I, there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of particularly, one thing that libertarians and progressives come together on, right, this is one of the reasons why Tulsi Gabbard seems to have a following among both lefties and right some lefties and righties, Ran, uh, Ron Paul was another one of these guys who yes, they're yes. progressives to say, yeah, I kind of like that Ron Paul guy because he talks mm-hmm. about getting out of U.S. empire, right? Really? Yeah. This is something that, that people like. I do not think that you can end U.S. empire until you begin to uh, pull the plug on the hydrocarbon-driven economy. Hydrocarbons, that's what makes empire go. It's not only the fuel that you've pointed out and that the uh, Brown University cost of war study pointed out not, not only literally fuels U.S. empire, but also creates carbon dioxide by the U.S. empire burning it and putting it into the atmosphere, but also it is the predicate for more empire now. Because
1: sure.
2: if we're going to keep going down the hydrocarbon route, the United States is going to have to make sure that it controls who has access. To hydrocarbons over the next five or six decades and that is going to require ever larger defense budgets which will then feed what more climate change and it is a self-reinforcing system that i think is one i mean i spend a lot of time and i have written about what is happening to in terms of ecocide around the planet i mm. think is, is the, the the sixth great extinction is uh something of an abomination. And the impacts of these things are accelerating. Yes. You, you know, you pointed out that American people are more aware of climate change than ever. I might have something to do with the fact that just this last year there were two bomb cyclones within a month's time in the Midwest. There had never been a bomb cyclone. Now there are two of them. You know, in the and the, the,
0: Oh, we're getting uh, it. And I'm uh, I'm just curious. You know, it seems like most people are saying. You know, the the, the uh, you know arctic melting the icebergs disappearing most people realize ooh this is really not good but there must be other people as you're describing who are rubbing their hands together thinking yeah this is great let's have more global warming and more melting of the the ice cap on top of the globe they can profit from that
2: <laughs> yes there is a profit motive there oh my goodness and, i mean look china and and russia are already moving into the Arctic, as I yeah, mentioned sure, earlier, with sure. starting exploratory drilling, and then Pompeo is putting out a, a call to arms, so to speak, for U.S. corporations, extractive industries, to get cracking. And this is why the United States will have to increase its military presence in the Arctic, to, to basically protect U.S. access to those resources
0: We're and really also to limit
2: the access of competitors.
0: Oh, that's great. What a wonderful... Policy Now, the awareness and concern about climate crisis is is much increased, as we recognize. Among most people, we're all doing what we can. I wonder how much we civilians can do, how effective our, you know, green-focused efforts can be if the Pentagon continues as it has. Uh, It sounds like—well, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think, you know— one of the places of education is, unfortunately, in people who have a direct, as we mentioned earlier, Keynesian interaction with the defense budget. I mean, there has to be at some point a decision made that that we as a people are not going to continue to reap the benefits of of this military industrial complex and its cooperation its it's sort of interlocking iron relationship with the oil industry and i think i think consumers and individuals when they you know when they organize and get together can actually have a great effect i think one of the things i always am aware of trying to do is dispel the notion that it's all on corporations because, you know, they say, you know, corporations are people, too, now. Well, corporations are actually made up of people, and there are people in the Pentagon, and there are people working making F-35s, and I know it's very difficult because people want to eat, and they want a good job, and getting a factory job for Lockheed making an F-35 is, is remunerative, Yeah, but, but there are, you know, if you look at our, our transportation infrastructure, our energy infrastructure and our sewage and water transmission infrastructure, they are decrepit relics of yes. a bygone era. No. And I think a, a Keynesian program that is not military in nature, as you pointed out, but is, um, is civilian in nature and starts to build an infrastructure that can do what? You know, Texas is home of the largest wind farm production in America, and it's actually... Oh, interesting the hottest wind farm investment market in America, Texas.
1: Wow.
2: Texas. Iowa is another place where where wind power is is growing uh, exponentially. Uh You know, Britain just had, last year they had their first week without coal, an entire week where they did not have to burn any coal to provide electricity. This year they had two weeks without coal.
1: Wow.
2: So it's there to be had, Now it's just a matter of, I think, people impressing upon the people that they send to Congress in particular their desire for something different than what has been done. And that's this interlocking, highly destructive relationship between oil and gas, which is essentially, as I said earlier, subsidizing our own destruction.
0: Ah, yes. What a great policy. Subsidizing our own destruction. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. If people want to read uh, more of what you write, to what can you direct them?
2: Uh, You can go to newsvandal.com, that's spelled like it sounds, newsvandal.com, or you can go to Truthout, and if you type in Truthout and my last name, S-O-T-T-I-L-E, you'll see a number of my environmental pieces and environmentally themed pieces there. And if you go to uh, newsvandal.com, you'll see a box come up, you can sign up for the rundown, I aggregate news five days Uh a week and curate it and turn it into the rundown. Bert, I really appreciate you indulging me for the hour.
0: Well, thank you so much. We've learned quite a bit. We try to shed light into rabbit holes. Thank you. Take care. Song called Oil. <laughs>